Well, I want to begin this morning by officially welcoming you to the world of apocalyptic literature. Welcome, okay? We've been in Daniel 1 through 6 the last uh, four weeks, and, and I said last week that, that this book is broken up into two halves, and Daniel 1 through 6 is the story of Daniel. It's very familiar territory for us. We grew up on these stories, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, the, the dreams, the doxologies, these kings praising God. We, we, we're comfortable there. And then this week we're going to start with the apocalyptic section of Daniel, the visions of Daniel in the last half of the book. And, and to just really accent the change, I'm going to read a quote from Martin Luther about this genre of literature. It's Martin Luther, reformer. They have a strange way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they're getting at. It's Martin Luther on apocalyptic literature. So, you know, I'm glad that uh, the truths of sola, scriptura, and faith alone, and Christ alone are in Romans and not in Daniel, because he would have probably not discovered them if they were in Daniel. But we're going to start Daniel 7 today and, and just tread into the ter- this unfamiliar territory, probably of the territory that we are least familiar with in our day and age, um, the, the territory we're least comfortable with and that we're, we're most intimidated by. But as we tread into Daniel 7 and following, I want to give three guidelines before we do anything else for how we read this type of literature. Three guidelines that will just help um, steer our ship as we go into these waters, okay? So uh, you might want to write these down. This, this, I hope, will help you whenever you read apocalyptic literature, when you're reading Daniel or Revelation or Ezekiel, that, that you would be able to have these guidelines just ground you and ground the way you read these. So, so guideline number one is that apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic, so we should read humbly. All right? It's highly symbolic, and that's probably not a surprise to you, but what that means is that we should read humbly. The truth is that when you look for a commentary on Daniel, they categorize commentaries on Daniel according to different interpretations of these chapters. You can get a commentary that believes this about these chapters, a commentary that believes this about these chapters, and a commentary that believes that about these chapters. And they're reading the same text, but they're these symbols, and they're interpreting these symbols differently. And so they have different conclusions about what it means, and we need to be humble about that. I'll just share this, that when Redeemer Church was planted almost five years ago, there were two separate bodies that came together, and those two separate bodies had, had really two separate takes on these types of things. And I'm, I praise the Lord that what we've seen over the years is that we've been able to take those differences and come together and so say, let's, let's focus on the gospel. Let's focus on what's central. Let's dig into the scriptures and dig into the meaning and then grow together. And that's the approach we need to have, not to just shy away from the symbols, not to say we don't know what this means, we can't know what it means, but to be humble. And to say, God, help us, but, but knowing that we're not going to get the corner on the book of Daniel here. So we need to be humble as we read. I'll share one more story because I, I just think it's humorous. Uh, this morning, early, I, was, I decided I'm going to Google image the four beasts of Daniel 7 and just see what, maybe I'll find a good picture, you know, that we can put up on the screen to show these beasts, uh, a depiction of it. And they were very funny looking pictures, and I don't think they're what Daniel saw, any of them, but, but one I saw, I'll just, a little preview, one of the beasts has eagle's wings, and these beasts stands for empires, and so 
you know, most of these pictures would show like th this B stands for this empire, this B stands for this empire. One of these pictures had a fifth slot, and it took the eagle's wings, and underneath was the American flag on it. And, uh, and so USA right here in Daniel 7. So that's an example of um, not very humble interpretation of the symbols and just uh, doing what you want with that. So we're not going to do, do that this morning, all right? So highly symbolic. Let, let's read humbly. Now, secondly, second point, apocalyptic literature is intended, this is important, not primarily to inform us about the future, but primarily to equip us for today. This is not intended to primarily give, give you, Ron Marino, information about the future. This is intended to give you what you need to be equipped to live today as an exile. Whatever we have here about the future, whatever God shows us, whatever Daniel sees in these visions and that he inspired for us, is not just so we can know what's going to happen. It's so that we can live today to the glory of God and joy of all people. And, and so what that means is that we should not only read humbly, but we should read confidently. Mixed with that humility that these are symbols that we don't quite understand, and there's things that we, we're not sure what this means, is confidence that God gave us this for a reason. Confidence that God does want to grow us through this passage. Confidence that as we dig in, even with questions left unanswered at the end, that God's going to work in us to equip us to live today. That, that the, the meaning of this text is clear, even if all the symbols are not. Does that make sense? And so we're going to read confidently. Finally, apocalyptic literature is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ as is every passage of Scripture. This is no exception to that. I want you to see how important this is. Turn to John 5 with me for a minute. John chapter 5. Jesus is speaking with the religious leaders who are rejecting his ministry. And he says in John chapter 5, verse 39, You search the Scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. Let's just stop there and just notice how um, that statement really should, we should be uncomfortable with that statement. You search the scriptures and you think that in them you have eternal life. Chris Heitch, wouldn't you say that in the scriptures we have eternal life? Yeah, yeah. So you agree though, right? Scriptures, eternal life is in here, right? You search, the, so you search the scriptures, you think that in them you have eternal life. So, so that, that kind of rubs us the wrong way because the scriptures, we know this is, this is the story of salvation right here. But here's what you're saying, the path to eternal life because what Jesus says next is, it is they that bear witness about me. It's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So if, if we search the scriptures without a view of Christ, and we're, and we're trying to find life in the scriptures without looking to Christ, then we're missing the whole point. And that's just as true for apocalyptic as any other section of scripture. If we turn to Daniel 7 and we don't have, on the front of our minds, we are, we are looking to see how this points us to Jesus. We are looking to see how this leads us to our Savior. If, if we search it out but not with that in mind, then we're not going to be helped today. But if we search it out with Christ in mind, and if we look for Christ and we pray for the Spirit to show us Christ through these texts, then what Jesus says is that we will have life. We'll see Christ, and we'll run to Him, and He'll give us life. And so apocalyptic literature is centered 
on the person and work of Christ. So with those as our guidelines, highly symbolic, so let's read humbly. Intended to equip us, so let's read confidently. Points us to Christ, so let's read expectantly that we're going to see Christ today. Let's read, let's read expectantly that God is going to show us the glory of his son as we look at this chapter. So today what we're going to do, our approach the next two weeks is, is we're going to take these, these six chapters in two weeks, and today we're just going to look at Daniel 7. Next week we're going to do Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. All right? Now the reason we're doing that is because Daniel 1, all these chapters are really interconnected. Daniel 7 lays the foundation for everything else that comes after that. If you don't understand Daniel 7, then you're really not going to understand anything in Daniel 8 through 12. But if we, can get, if we can let Daniel 7 help us get our bearings, then next week we'll be able to make progress in the rest of the visions. The other aspect of it is that chapter 7 is really looking at the vision. It's, it's the vision that sees it from the air. So, so I titled the sermon, the, the, the Journey Home, but from the air, from 30,000 feet. We're looking down and we're, and we're seeing the big picture in Daniel 7. Daniel 8 through 12 is going to show us all the details. We'll be on the ground, we'll be going through the forest, looking at the details of what we see in Daniel 7. So this week is the big picture. Get our bearings straight. This is the journey home from exile, from the air, from 30,000 feet. And next week we will get on the ground and go through the final chapters that way. So with all that said as an introduction, let's get into our text. There's two halves to chapter 7. Verses 1 through 14 is Daniel's vision. And verses 15 through 28 is an, an angelic interpretation of that vision, an angel telling Daniel what his vision means. And so we're going to start by looking at Daniel's vision itself in verses 1 through 14. So if you turn there to ch- chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth, like between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. 
I looked at them because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Those are the visions that Daniel sees in this first chapter. And let's just walk through the the really three sections of, of those visions that he had in the night. The first is this vision of four beasts. Daniel looks and, and he sees the, the great sea. And for, for us, we think, let's go to the beach, let's go to the ocean. It's such a great, relaxing place. But in their day and age, the sea represented absolute chaos and evil. The sea was, was a dangerous place. The sea was a place where, where you could die. And the sea was a place that represented chaos in their world. And so he's looking out at the sea and the four winds of heaven are stirring up the sea. And out of the sea comes a beast. Um, and this first beast, you know, every one of these, he gives us these descriptions, like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, but you shouldn't really picture just a lion because that's what he's just grasping, right? He's trying to grasp what he's seeing. It's kind of like a lion, but it has eagle's wings. And, and then he sees this transformation occur to this first beast. This, this lion with eagle's wings is, is then made to be like a man. And this, this first beast is transformed to be human, essentially. And, and we'll, we'll see what that means as we go further in the text. But then, then after this lion, a second one comes. And this is like a bear, but it's, it's kind of um, lopsided, I guess is the best way to say. It's raised up on one side. It's got ribs in its teeth, which shows that it, it has been devouring. And then, and then there's a voice that comes and says, Arise, devour much more. Have much more flesh. So it's this terrifying vision of this bear that just devours and, and eats whatever is in its path. And this third beast, it's a leopard, and, and it's got four wings on its back, and it's got four heads, and, and dominion is given to this leopard. And, and so now this, this beast is, is reigning. And then finally, this last one, notice in verse 7, this one is terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. And then it says it was different from all the beasts that were before it. There's something very unique about this fourth beast. They're all different in some respects, but this beast is different from all the rest. This beast is different in its terror and in its power and in its strength. And it's devouring, it's stamping people to the ground, it's breaking in pieces. And then it just gets very strange to us. It has these ten horns that come up. And then one more horn that comes up and takes away three of them. And then this, this little horn... It says, if you look at it closely, it's got eyes of a man, and it's got a mouth that's speaking great things. So, so right there at the very center of this final beast is, again, this, this human-like figure, this personification of a man. And at this point, you should feel confused. <laughs> you sh- you sh- we're we're going to get to the interpretation, but this is just what he sees. This is just what he sees. And, and, and no, what he sees sh- should cause con- confusion. Like, what is this? But also just revulsion. Like, these beasts are hideous-looking creatures. These are, these are not 
normal sights to see. These, these don't fit in with God's creation. The, the, these, these aren't like the beasts that, we, that God created in Genesis 1 on the earth, but these are corruptions of, of these animals. These, these are evil twists off what God has created. They're, they're beasts. And so that's the first part of the vision that he sees, and, and it culminates with this final beast and this little horn that is speaking great things, that's speaking boastful things. And then his vision shifts to a throne room. And he sees that these thrones are placed, and on the, the central throne, he describes that he sees the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, which signifies the, the eternality of this figure, that this figure has always been. If you go back and back and back and back, this figure has always been, he always will be, the Ancient of Days. And he describes this Ancient of Days taking his seat on a throne and his clothing is white as snow, just signifying his absolute purity, his absolute holiness and righteousness. His hair, the hair of his head is like pure wool. It's white. And, and what that's signifying is this ancient of days, his wisdom, his, his absolute wisdom that he, he knows all things and he understands all things. He sees all things. He's wise. His throne is fiery flames. Its wheels burning fire. A stream of fire is issuing out before him. He's a righteous king. He's, he's a judge. He's wrathful against that which is unholy. You, you picture around him, and there's this picture of a thousand thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand innumerable angels before the Ancient of Days. And what's going on is that they open the books. And what's going on is he takes his seat as this Ancient of Days is, is about to judge. This, this is a scene of judgment. And in 11 and 12, we see the judgment take place that the beast who is speaking great things is killed. And then these other beasts, their, their dominion is taken away from them, and, and they're allowed to live a little longer. And we'll get to that later as well. But that's what he sees in the Ancient of Days. But then there's one more vision after that. This judgment has occurred, but then he sees one more vision. He sees with the clouds of heaven literally riding on the clouds, he sees what is like a son of man, like a man, someone, someone that has, has the resemblance and the appearance of you and me. And this man, this one that's like a son of man, is, is coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. He is ascending to the Ancient of Days, and he's being presented before him. He, he is coming to the Ancient of Days to be presented and to be essentially judged to to. to to have the verdict passed about himself. And, and so the Ancient of Days sees the Son of Man come to him, and how does he respond when this Son of Man is presented before him? He gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom. And this, this kingdom is not a local geographical area with one people, but it's a kingdom where all peoples, nations, and languages are going to serve this Son of Man. And then this should sound very familiar to us. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Where else did we hear that? Heard it from the, the lips of King Nebuchadnezzar. We heard it from the lips of King Darius speaking about God, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is a forever kingdom. And, and, and now it's saying that this son of man who's presented to the Ancient of Days receives that kingdom and has that eternal universal reign given to him. 
And so this is the vision that Daniel sees. And in 15 to 28, we get the interpretation. So let's just begin working through the second half of this. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. He has no idea what to do with this. He's, he's terrified and confused. And apparently he's still somehow in this dream experience, this vision experience, because he approaches one of the angels that's standing before the Ancient of Days. He approaches one of them that stood there, and he asks him the truth concerning all this. He's saying, what does all this mean? And so the angel told him, says, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And so, verses 17 and 18, what the angel does is give the biggest picture version of what he just saw. Verses 17 and 18 is the the main line interpretation of the whole vision. He says, these four great beasts are four kings who will arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And so he says these four beasts represent Four kings and kingdoms will rise out of the earth. And we, we, looking back now, and even Daniel in his day, can begin to see and can look back and understand, well, who are these kings? Who are these kings? And I want to show you this. Look, look back to verse, verses 3 and following as he describes the beasts. Look at the description of the first beast. Like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a, like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Do you remember King Nebuchadnezzar? Remember first that he had this, this dream of a statue, right? And this statue had a head of gold, and it had arms and a chest of silver, and, a, and a legs of bronze, and feet of iron. And, and Daniel told him, you're the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, in your kingdom, you are that first level. That, that's going to help us interpret this, that we see, we see four kingdoms there. Babylon is the first, and, and so now we see four kingdoms again depicted as beasts. And this first one is like a lion with eagle's wings, but then a mind of a man is given, the, the mind of a man is given to it. Remember Nebuchadnezzar would not humble himself, and God's judgment on him was, I'm going to make you like a beast. <laughs> I'm going to make you like a beast, and you're going to roam the field, you're going to eat the grass, you're going to lose your sanity. And it describes that as he was there in the wilderness like a beast, that his, his hair grew long like eagle's feathers. Remember that description, that his hair was like eagle's wings, and, and his fingernails grew long. And then God lifted him up, and he returned his sanity to him, and he became like a man. And at that point, Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. He became a worshiper of the one true God. You see that happening here in verse 4. You see this powerful ruler, this, this description of eagle's wings that just alludes back to what we see happen to him, but then the mind of a man is given to him. The, the wings are plucked off, and he's, he's made to be now, no longer a beast, but a man. And we'll just pause there and reflect that. What, what that teaches us at a very applicational level is that all of us are beasts outside of God coming to us and, and opening our eyes to see the glory of Christ. We're all distortions of who God made us to be. We're all revulsive, hideous creatures who have, who have marred the image of God. And, and God comes to us and he opens our eyes and he makes us who we were made to be. When it says that he made him like a man, we know with Nebuchadnezzar that, that meant that he made him a worshiper of God. And so we see this this recounting the first king, and it kind of clues us into who the other beasts are as well. 
Now remember, after the Empire of Babylon, Daniel lived through this. We saw it in the book. Who came next? The Medo-Persian Empire, Darius and Cyrus came. And it makes sense because this bear is lifted up on one side. There's, there's kind of two sides to this bear, and one is more powerful than the other, but they're allied together. That's the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's who came after Babylon. Now, we're going to see in chapter 8 that after the Persian Empire came the Greek Empire. And you guys know the name Alexander the Great. Right? You've heard of him, and you know that he came swiftly in, and, and he just took over the known world, and then at a young age he died, and, and what happened? He, his dominion was split into four. And what, what do you see here? You see this four-headed leopard with four wings on its back. And, and guys, this is, this is before Alexander existed. This, this is before his dominion came. God is showing what will be here. And then if, if you know your history, you know after the Greeks comes who? The Romans, right? And so we would, we would presume that this fourth beast would be Rome. And in a way, it is. In a way that we, we look back and say this, this fourth beast is Rome. But at the same time, we look at this text and we say, but this, this really isn't just Rome. There, this, like it says, there's, there's something dreadful about this. There's some, there's, this beast is exceedingly strong. This beast is different from the rest. And this beast gives way to this little horn who's speaking great things. There's something more going on with this final beast. And Daniel perceives that. So even though, even though this angel just told him, here's the main interpretation, four kings will arise. After that, the saints will be in the kingdom of God. Daniel says in verse 19, then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. About the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before three, which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Daniel's, Daniel's saying that fourth beast is very different from the other three. That fourth beast is Terrifying. Those beasts were scary. This one is terrifying. This one is dreadful. And then he even says, there's new information here. As I looked, this horn, the little horn on the fourth beast, made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given. And, and so he asked this angel, what about this fourth beast? And in 23 through 27, the angel describes, well, here's, Here's who the fourth beast is. He says, this is, there's the fourth kingdom that's coming. It, it does represent a kingdom. There's a fourth kingdom that's coming. It's going to be different from the other ones. It, it's going to devour the whole earth. It's going to, it's going to consume all, all the earth. And there, be, there are going to be ten kings who arise. You see that in verse 24. And after that will arise one more. He's going to put three of them to death. Put three of these kings to death. And then 25, he says, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And shall think to change the times and the law. They, the, the, the saints, shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And so this, this fourth beast is a kingdom of unmatched terror and, and a king of unprecedented sacrilege. So it's a kingdom of unmatched terror. There's no kingdom that's ever been like this. There's no kingdom that's ever been so terrifying, so, so powerful, so evil as this kingdom's going to be. And then from that kingdom will arise a king who will, will be unprecedented in his warring against God and against God's people. This, this final king is going to hate God's people. And he's going to try to change 
their worship. He's going to try to come. He's, he's going to put them to death. He's going to war against the saints. And the text even says that they shall be given into his hand and that he will prevail over them. This king's going to have intentions set on destroying the people of God and God's going to allow that to happen for a time, times and half a time is what the text says. But even though it's unmatched terror and unprecedented sacrilege, it also is an unexpected ending because at the height of this king's power and at the point where it seems like he has conquered, look what happens in verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And so this fourth beast will face an unexpected, surprising ending where his dominion is taken away and the people that he hated will receive the dominion and the kingdom and the glory. That's the truth about the fourth beast. And Daniel's response in verse 28, here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel... My thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. He's, he's just stunned in silence. This is during the reign of Belshazzar. He's not yet seen Babylon fall, but he knows it's about to fall. He knows they're weak. He knows the Persians are coming. He, he sees some of the truth of what's happening, but he's confused. He doesn't understand. He's an old man in exile. He's been waiting for God to, to bring his people back. And he just is silent. He doesn't know what to make of this. And 8 through 12, God's going to keep showing him more things to equip him. But today, what we want to do is just stop there and, and meditate on the two themes that come through this text. Two themes that God is speaking to Daniel and that God is speaking to us that are intended to strengthen his exiled people. Two themes that are intended to strengthen you and me today as exile, strengthen Daniel when he was in exile, strengthen the people he wrote to, two themes. And the first one is sovereignty over suffering. Sovereignty over suffering. We're just going to meditate on this theme for a few minutes. Listen, this vision tells us that there are going to be these, these beastly kingdoms that rise up in the earth and they are going to war against God's people and that they're going to prevail over them telling us that, that these rulers are going to take aim at the people of God and God is going to allow his people to suffer under their reign. But we need to see that that is not where the text starts. The, look back at chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Earlier in the book, Daniel referred to God by simply saying heaven. He said to Nebuchadnezzar, until you know that heaven rules. In the book of Daniel, and as Daniel writes, when he's describing heaven, he's describing God. He's describing God's presence. And here in this vision, the four winds of heaven are stirring up the great sea. So there's this chaotic sea, the place of evil, the place of chaos, and and what this is communicating is that God himself is stirring up the sea. God is moving to bring these things about so that these beasts rise. Now that's a mystery to us. It's, it's a huge mystery. What, what is God doing? Why, why would God stir up the sea so that these beasts rise up and take aim at God's people? 
But, but we just need to see for, for this moment right now that God's behind this, that God is the one stirring up the sea. He is, he is stirring up the opposition to himself and to his people. He's not the direct cause to these beasts doing what they do, but he is stirring them up out of the sea so that they take action. Now, look, there's, there's a few other clues to how God's sovereignty works itself out in this picture. Look at verse 6. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. In the whole book, what, what, what's been the theme? That who gives dominion to kings and rulers in this world? God does. He sets up kings. He removes kings. Dominion passes from one king to another because God is setting it up. And so here we, we get that little hint that, that these beasts, God is the one giving them to the dominion. God is the one that is raising them up and letting them have the power. So he's, he's there in it. Now, this picture of judgment shows that God is able, any moment, to come in and stop it. These aren't forces that God is warring against and that he can't seem to defeat until one day he finally gets enough strength to defeat them. This is not a good versus evil. This is God versus his creation. And God can come at any moment and stop it and judge it. And he does in, in this vision. The Ancient of Days opens the courts. The books are opened. The beast is killed. And then the ones that aren't killed is even because of God's sovereign hand saying that their lives were allowed to be prolonged for a little while. Judgment was coming. It's not because God wasn't able. He's he's sovereign in it. And then verse 25, this is so key. This beast, this little horn, speaking words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, shall change to think the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand. They shall be given into his hand. Who's giving them into his hand? God is. God is giving his people into the hands of this little horn. The the whole text tells us that God is sovereign in the suffering that his people will experience under these beasts. God has a sovereign plan for a redemptive history. The, The Bible gives us a story that we call redemptive history. God's plan from creation to new creation to redeem a people for himself. And everything that happens in history is part of that plan. And God is working it all out. God does not have a hope for the end of time and then that there are forces that are working against that hope and God's always making a counter move and a counter move until finally he wins in the end. No, God has it all planned out from beginning to end, including the beastly rulers of this world. And part of that plan, though we might not understand it, is that his people would suffer under these beastly kings. Part of his plan is that that his people will endure the persecutions and the sufferings and even death itself as they're faithful to him. Now, this has been happening in Christianity since, since the New Testament was being written, all the way through the, the Roman Empire, the Colosseum. You, you see different stages where there was peace, and then, but then mainly opposition to God's people. And you look and you can subscribe to a a magazine like Voice of the Martyrs today, and you, and you hear stories of what's happening with ISIS, and you see God's people being persecuted by these, by these kingdoms and by these rulers that are against them, right? But, but here in our day and age, and, and in America in the last 200 years or so, we have, we have lived in a relative stage of peace. And what that means is that we, we get really surprised when 
when we see this world and we see our country take aim at God's people, it, it seems strange to us, and we, we get up in arms about it, but, but we shouldn't, because this text is telling us that the kingdoms of this world are beasts that are opposed to God and to his people. Fundamentally, even if there's a, a time of peace, the kingdoms of this world are not the kingdom of God. They never will be the kingdom of God. They are set against the kingdom of God, which means they're set against the people of God. So some of you might have seen a few weeks ago that there was a few senators who were questioning a, a nominee by President Trump, and, and this nominee for, for this position he was being heard for was a few years ago um, involved in a case where he wrote a statement in which he defended the simple truth that those who do not know God through Jesus Christ are condemned. That, that was his statement. Those who do not know God through Jesus Christ are condemned. That is almost as basic to Christianity and to the gospel as you can get. And, and he wrote that in defense of a college who had suspended someone who was, who was really undermining that truth. Now, these senators brought this up and, and said, you, you are being Islamophobic, you are being bigoted, you are being hateful, this is not what our country is about. And they asked him point blank, do you believe that Muslims are condemned? Do you believe that Jews are condemned? Do you think that is loving and respectful to Muslims and Jews? And he just gave very biblical, very respectful, very straightforward answers. I believe that we're all made in the image of God, we're all worthy of respect, but I do believe that they are condemned if they do not know Jesus Christ. That's what Christians believe. Now, I share that story not to get political, except for the fact that this text is somewhat political, right? Because this text is not, not political in the sense that it's taken sides, but instead that it's saying that governments and rulers are opposed to God's people. They're opposed to God's people. And what we need to realize is that what we have experienced in, in our day and age is not normal. What we will experience more and more is normal. And instead of taking up arms, whether physically or just in our minds and hearts, against where the, the rulers of our land, we need to realize that they, this is not the kingdom of God. We are exiles on this earth, and we will suffer for God if that's what he's called us to. He's sovereign. And so that can be a comfort to us. And so this strengthens us because in the suffering, we, we, we can always know this is part of God's plan. When, when, when you are suffering, when, you, when you're being persecuted or in any suffering in your life, you can know that this is not something that happened outside of God's plan. This is not something that some other force that's, that's stronger than God did to me. But this is, this is part of God's sovereign plan for history itself and for my life personally. And so I, I can trust him and I can endure and persevere in this. And God wants Daniel to know this because what, what his people were anticipating was the end of exile and then just the good life. But instead what was going to happen was they were going to be brought back from exile and there was going to be more oppression and more suffering and they were going to need to endure more and more and more. And God wants them to know do it, endure, persevere, because this is all part of my plan. So sovereignty over suffering is the first theme. But the second theme is salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. So 
we might have questions about who the beasts represent, the, the possibilities that I gave there a few minutes ago about um, which empires they religion. Not everyone believes those are necessarily the, the ones that they refer to. There's some differences on those things. Not everyone, not everyone agrees on what the fourth beast necessarily refers to. But one thing is crystal clear in this passage. God will bring salvation to his people through judgment. God will bring salvation to his people through judgment. God's judgment will come suddenly and swiftly. Verse 10, the court sat in judgment, the books were opened, the beast was killed. The court sat in judgment, the books were opened, the beast was killed. Verse 22, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. God's judgment will come, and it will come suddenly, and it will come swiftly. And so no matter how bad things look, no matter how out of control this world looks, no matter, no matter how, how much it looks like God has been defeated, he is sovereignly allowing everything that will happen, and one day he will judge. Just like that. He'll just come in and put an end to it. Just like that. He is in complete control and he will judge. And, and notice what's on the flip side of every one of these judgments is salvation for God's people. With judgment comes salvation for God's people. In verse 22, the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. Judgment was given for God's people. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So this judgment of the beasts is a judgment that is on behalf of God's people. It's for you and me. It's for his people who are suffering, and they, and they possess the kingdom. And then again in verse 26, after his dominion is taken away, what happens in 27? The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms is given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And so whenever there is judgment, there is salvation. God's people will receive the kingdom. And, and just notice that how is salvation perceived in this text? It is a future event of us receiving and possessing and living in the kingdom forever and ever and ever. You have, if you are in Christ, been saved. You can say, I've been saved. And we ask, we ask, is she saved? Has he been saved? But we need to realize that salvation is future as well, that there is a hope beyond our salvation now, that our ultimate salvation is, is salvation into the kingdom of God, salvation into the presence of God, salvation when the kingdom of God becomes the kingdom of God on this earth. And that is what we are being saved to when judgment comes. But now, now we're going to stop for a second and kind of as we try to wrap this passage up today, we need to ask a question. Where, where is the Son of Man in the second half of this chapter? Because if you are reading the first half of the chapter, that seems like the most climactic part, doesn't it? You're reading, and it's the beasts first, and then the Ancient of Days next, and then the Son of Man who receives dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all nations will serve him. In the second half of the chapter, it seems like he's not even there. He seems absent. Why is the angel not describing him? There's a couple of mysteries here. So first on that one, why does he seem absent? I want, you, I want to point you to a phrase that occurs over and over in the second half of 
of this chapter. You see it first in verse 18, the phrase, the saints of the Most High. See that? The saints of the Most High. You see it again in 22, the saints of the Most High. 25, again, the saints of the Most High. 27, the saints of the Most High. That phrase is important because the, the word he's using for Most High there is different from the word Most High elsewhere in this chapter and in this book. And if, do any of you have an NASB on you right now? Is anyone looking at NASB? So what's the, on verse 25, can you read um, the very first two lines of that? Yeah, that's good. You hear that? He'll speak against the Most High and wear out the saints of the highest one. Now, what's going on there in our translations is the word means Most High. Highest one, Most High, those, that, that means the same thing, right? But I, I'm thankful for the NSV translating that to reflect that the word is different because what he's doing is he's drawing a distinction between two different characters here. So look at verse 25 again. He shall speak words against the Most High. And that most high is one term, and shall wear out the saints of the most high, the highest one, a, a different term there. And every time that this phrase, the saints of the most high, is used, it is referring to, with, with that term, the, this, the highest one. It's referred to not as what we've seen in Daniel, generically the most high. It, it, he's, he's employing a new term to describe the highest one. And if you look at verse 14, you, you see this language that, makes it seem like this son of man has become the highest one, right? He has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom. All peoples will serve him. His dominion is everlasting. His kingdom's forever. And what I believe is happening is that the son of man is in this text, not as a son of man anymore, but as the highest one. And the people of God are now the people of the highest one. They're the people of the son of man who has become the king of the universe, who is the highest one. The, the other observation is that I think confirms this is that in verse 14, the son of man is the one who receives the kingdom, but, but then as you go through the rest of the text, who receives the kingdom? It's the people of the highest one. It's his people that receive the kingdom. But look down at verse 27. The last observation before we, we kind of move forward is it says the, the kingdom will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion will endure from generation to generation. All, all will serve and obey him. So it repeats what it just said was true about the Son of Man. The Most High's kingdom, the highest one's kingdom, is an everlasting kingdom. I know that's fairly technical to follow, but I think it's technical because Daniel, to, to him, this is still very mysterious. You know, he, he's, he's living in a time where well, they believe there is one God with, with not really a, a strong understanding of what plurality meant, much less an understanding of Trinity or of God becoming flesh. But this text is preparing the way for us to understand what's going on, that, that, that this one that's like a son of man is given dominion, and now he's referred to as the Most High, and we're his people. Now, it's a mystery at this point in, in progressive revelation, but to us, it's not a mystery. Let's go to the book of Matthew, and I want you to see how Jesus clarifies all of this for us. The book of Matthew, we're going we're gonna to look at a few texts together. So first, Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9, and just be ready to kind of flip through here to a few different texts. 
Actually, we're going to be in Matthew 8. Matthew 8, verse 20. Matthew 8, verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And I want you to see that because that's the first time in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And throughout the rest of the book, he consistently refers to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus took this title for himself. And, and what he's doing there is, on the one hand, he's showing, I, I'm human. I, I have become man. I, I, people, people are calling him the Son of God, and he continues to say, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. He, he has taken on flesh, and he's identified with us. But Jesus also knows about Daniel 7. Turn with me to Matthew 24. Jesus is speaking with his disciples about the end times. He's speaking about what's going to happen. And in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, Jesus says this, 24, 29 to 31, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the power of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And so here Jesus uses the language of Daniel 7, and he says, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven to gather his people. Sounds very much like what we've been looking about in Daniel 7. But, but then, in verse 20, chapter 26, turn a few pages over to chapter 26, Jesus just finished these teachings on, on this glorious return of the Son of Man. And then he says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus just said, the Son of Man is going to come with power and great glory, and, and, and he's going to gather his people from all over the earth, but in two days the Son of Man is going to be delivered to be crucified. That's not in Daniel 7. <laughs> And later in the chapter, he is before the high priest. And in verse 62 of chapter 26, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that he's going to testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so again, Jesus declares that he's the Son of Man, that he's the one that's on the clouds of heaven, that he's seated at the right hand of, in Daniel 7 terms, the Ancient of Days, the right hand of power. And as he makes that declaration, they respond by saying blasphemy, and then they condemn him, and they get him flogged, and they get him crucified. And as he's crucified, he cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? and he dies, and he's buried. What is going on in these chapters? Who is this Son of Man? And why is the Son of Man not coming in glory and and saving his people? Why is he dying on a cross? What Scripture tells us is that the Son of Man came the first time to not judge, but to be judged. 
In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is judged. The Son of Man is the one who, who comes and, and, and who kills the beasts who are killing his people, who are slaughtering his people. He's the one who comes and brings righteous judgment. But when Jesus comes, he says, I'm the Son of Man, but I'm going to be judged. And I'm going to be judged because it's not just the rulers of this world and the governments of this world that will be judged, but it's every single person. Every one of us, remember like Nebuchadnezzar, we're all beasts. We're all beasts who deserve judgment unless someone takes our place. And so Jesus, the Son of Man, comes not in glory, but in humility. Remember chapter 2, he's, he's the little stone that comes. And before he fills the whole earth like a great mountain, he's a little stone that comes and he's broken. And he dies on a cross, but then he rises again. He rises again, and before he ascends into heaven, this is how the Gospel of Matthew ends. And we need to see how Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, which you all know, coincides with Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Look at chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Daniel 7, who's given dominion over all the earth? The Son of Man. He's given dominion over all the earth. And why was he given dominion? Why does it say Daniel 7? So that all nations might serve him. All peoples, all nations, all languages. Look what Jesus says next. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. So all nations are going to serve Jesus Christ who has been given all authority until one day he comes and his, his kingdom will not pass away. How does it end? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, meaning until the, the, this age ends and my kingdom comes and it never ends. Jesus is saying here in Matthew 28:20, I am the son of man. And when I rose again after defeating death, after dying for sin, what we see in Daniel 7 is the son of man ascending to the Ancient of Days, being presented before him. That happened when Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven. All authority is given to him. And so Jesus right now is king. Jesus right now has been given all dominion, all authority. And, and, and what happens in the New Testament is we see Daniel 7 is expanded to include this whole age that we live in now. What looked like one event there, all dominion and all people serving him, we see now all dominion has been given to him, but now we live in an age where we go to all people and say, submit to the king. Worship the king. Repent and trust in the king so that you can be part of his coming kingdom. And one day, judgment will come, and there will be final future salvation. But right now, salvation is in the Son of Man because he was judged for us in our place. And so we are comforted and strengthened by the hope of salvation through judgment because the Son of Man was judged for us first. So, so when he comes back, we know we're not going to be judged with him. And, and all, we, all we do now is we go to the nations and we say, Jesus is king of all the earth. All authority has been given to him. Follow him. Trust in him. He's, he's been judged for you so you can be part of his forever kingdom. So worship him. And so today that's what we're going to do. We're going to close by just fixing our eyes on the Son of Man. Fixing our eyes on the Son of Man in his suffering, on what he's done for us and being judged in our place, and fixing our eyes on the Son of Man in his glory as he will return 
And no matter what suffering we endure, no matter what persecutions we face in this life, knowing that God has a sovereign plan, it centers on Christ, and he will save us. And so let's have the music team come, and we will transition into a time of worship as we close today. Um, Why don't you stand and just enter into a spirit of, of worship and prayer and celebration of our God.